Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Good afternoon. Hello, it's Sally Hughes here and... Kate Sevilla. It's very good to be back. Um, Brace yourselves, it's the sunshine hour. (laughs) Yeah. I'm actually genuinely excited about today's show because I am slightly obsessed with today's subject, as I think most people are, but I'm more openly obsessed with it, Mm. having been around the block a couple of times with it. We're going to talk about death. Well, hey! Um, (laughs) We are going to talk about death in hopefully... um, a real and honest and open and sensitive manner. We've got two perfect guests for it. So we've got Kat Lister, uh, the journalist who wrote just about my favourite journalism of last year. Um, cr- I just thought what she wrote last year about having been widowed at 36 um, were some of the most amazing pieces. Actually, the most amazing pieces I read that year. Yeah. Just full of admiration Agree. for those. So we're going to talk lots to Kat and also Rachel Clark who has just written her memoir, soon to be released. When's it out, Rachel? It's just come out. It's just Yay. come out. Um, and it's called Dear Life, A Doctor's Story of Love and Loss. Uh, Rachel's a former journalist, and she's now um, a doctor and a specialist in palliative care. She works in hospice. Um, Kat's husband ended his life in a hospice, so I'm sure we'll be talking about that in greater detail and why that stage of life is so important from a mm. care point of view. But I suppose, I mean... This show is two hours long. We could talk for the next two years and barely scratch the surface, which is mad, isn't it? Because it feels to me yeah. like death is a subject that should come up most weeks mm. organically. It should mm. be something that we at least take five minutes to think about or register or yep. process. Not that one can mitigate the awful when it happens, but why are we so reluctant <laughs> to talk about it? Yeah, people are more comfortable talking about money than they are death, which is really and saying that's, something. And that's pretty bad. <laughs> Which really, the English? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that maybe. Yeah, that's a, the, another big difference between. Well, so I always English. joke it's funny because it's a hundred percent strike record. We're all going to die at some point, so we might as well, well start, start talking and thinking about yeah. it now. And actually, kids are amazing in talking about death. You know, the conversations I've had with both my kids when they were little about what it's like when you die. I think when I die, I'd quite like to be burned, not drowned. You know incredibly open like it's just a part of their world and then something happens and maybe it's learned it's not innate it's cultural you end up feeling as though it's a subject where you might I think unintentionally cause other people harm or distress if you talk about it perhaps I'm I'm not sure I buy the idea that it's a taboo in the sense that there is something about it that makes us all flinch away from it I I know that um, I certainly am somebody who 
who chose not to think about it, but just because I, I, I was felt as though I was too busy getting on with the job of living and I just wanted to be immersed in the moment. Um, and But I also know that whenever someone I cared about faced death themselves or was going through bereavement, the thing that made me flinch away was this terror that somehow there was a right way to talk about it. And yeah. if I used the wrong words, mm. there was this magic formula that I didn't know. Um, I might hurt them. And I sometimes think when we say taboo, we really mean we're desperately frightened of unintentionally hurting people going through a really difficult time in their lives. And that's a very human and actually positive instinct in a way. Mm. I don't mm. know. I don't think it can be innately taboo. As you say, I don't think we can possibly be born terrified of talking no. about death because because other cultures, Indian culture, for example, yeah. it, it's a really, really normal thing to talk about and it's a revered process like any other stage of life and yeah. uh, and it's very much part of living. Which well, we hide it now. Yeah, we sort of hide it now because like back many, many, many years ago... Um, Grandma and granddad would live in the same house as us. Mm, they yeah. would die in the same house as us. You'd bury them somewhere nearby. Mm, like yeah. you would see and be privy to sex, death, everything. Childbirth. And the, yeah, childbirth. And now we tuck it away. We've outsourced them. Yeah. Birth mm. and death have both been outsourced. You know, these profoundly human experiences by and large take place in institutions. About 75% of us die in hospital now. Mm. Um, and. I guess in the absence of direct experience of anything, it's easy to be afraid of that something because our imaginations are superb at constructing ideas of what something is like. And I think death is, um, in our minds, it's a hybrid of, of what actually happens and what our imaginations construct. Um, and, and that's the thing, perhaps, that can be frightening. Because I think um, the word hospice particularly people have a lot of misconceptions about the work that hospices do you know and I had it as well um when we first started talking about hospices I was absolutely terrified because my idea or concept of what a hospice did was you know somebody is dying yeah immediately yes. Yes. they're going to yeah. go in um you're going to be separated um and 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 that's what and that's that's all that they encompass and actually yes. mm. a huge part of what hospices do is outreach you know um they go out into the community i do think the problem is with these amazing wonderful places um hospices um often exist in pockets of our neighborhoods that we don't come across in our everyday lives mm. we don't yeah. see what they do we don't necessarily want to hear what they do because i think it challenges our ideas about what death is and our own mortality um, and I think the problems with that is that I was very shocked when I heard how hospices are funded you know they only get 30% of uh, a government 13 30 percent so the rest they have to they have to raise themselves they're constantly because like Kat I I the problem with hospices is you don't know you don't understand their importance until someone has died on you that's the issue Mm. so prior to that they're just a scary thing for Mm. other people to go and die in Mm. and it wasn't until 
my dear friend who is in a hospice that I realised that they are constantly, constantly having to absorb patients who hospitals are having to chuck out yeah. and yeah. pay yeah. for them. Yes. And yeah. pay for them to be looked after. And, and ju so just to give an example of that pressure, so my hospice, I work in this gorgeous hospice called Catherine House, which is in um, a, a sort of rural part of North Oxfordshire. And it's completely amazing and and you know so many of the patients and families that we care for come away saying what you were able to give my mum or my sister or my dad was priceless mm. but actually there is a price on it and a really specific price we get less than 25 percent of our funding from the government That's and so the weird. rest three quarters of our funding comes from voluntary donations and the NHS is meant to be cradle to grave. Mm -hmm. So there's no other part of the health service where our ability to provide a maternity bed or an intensive yeah. care bed would rely on how much money the Jumble Sale yeah. raised that weekend. And yet dying for one part of our life that where we're arguably more vulnerable than any other yeah. is an add-on extra. It's not a core NHS service. And, and, and I just find that spectacularly shocking and I don't think people realize and you know in um <clears throat> at the most stressful point in in our lives um my husband Pat um was diagnosed with a brain tumor in 2012 yeah. um, so we lived with his brain tumor for six and a half years and am I right in saying you'd been together for about three years mm -hmm. when you got the diagnosis yeah. and it had been growing that whole time uh, we think it had been growing for about 15 years before wow. that okay. um, wow. the, pro the problem with Pat's tumour was that it's, it was a mixed glioma and so there's part of it that was very very high grade very very aggressive um, so managing that was quite hard um, when he finally uh, became so unwell that he needed to move into a hospital mm. environment and that was very stressful because he was on a mixed ward that uh, didn't cater for his very particular needs when you have a brain tumour. Um, we had to fight very, very hard to get him a hospice bed. And I think this is also something that we're not comfortable talking about is actually, I think there are only 200 hospices yeah, in the UK. Oh, wow. Um, there just aren't enough beds. And half a million people die every year in the UK. Yeah. And um, an average <coughs> hospice has maybe 15 beds. Mm. So, so it's not like just extraordinary. Offered. It's not just offered to you automatically. No. No, it's you have, you to, have fight. to fight for I felt like I had to fight for him yes. to get him a bed. We have a, 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 a kind of waiting list, an admissions list of patients. And every morning we have a meeting mm. where we triage these patients and we try and figure out who is in greatest need. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it is absolutely heartbreaking because you know there are three patients somebody's at home and they're 85 and they live by themselves and everything's falling and apart. they have no one they have no one someone is in a hospital with really difficult symptoms to manage and you know it's a completely chaotic inappropriate mm. environment and you're having to weigh up which need is greatest and who are you going to let down? And you want to bring them all in mm. and you can't. And some of these situations can be very complex. So say with Pat's condition, um, with a brain tumour, it wasn't just a fit and it, uh, his deterioration was very physical. Um, but, you know, uh, when we were in the hospital, um, physio would do tests like, well, he can get up and down the stairs. So we think he's ready to go home. Yeah. And I was like, well, but his short term memory has gone. So mm -hmm, that makes yeah. it really, really hard because I can't leave him for a split second. Yeah. By himself, yeah, um, he might be a danger mm -hmm, to himself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think because um, funding is so difficult, um, and because 
these amazing and wonderful hospices are under so much pressure. Mm. You know, we talk a lot about death positive movement and that's great. It's fantastic. And I, I really want more of us to be speaking about death in a positive way. But I think in order to have that conversation, we also need to introduce the idea that in order for us to feel in control of this experience and choose how we would like to die and what environment we'd, we'd like to die um, that th th those facilities need yeah, to be there yeah. Yeah. to actually be available and to mm -hmm. help you it, it's a, and, and to some extent I mean I, like you I think that the focus on talking having this conversation we're having now is absolutely wonderful and, and so much unintended suffering or pain can arise because people aren't having these conversations so it's great that we're talking but actually it's naive to think that having a conversation yeah. in and of itself is going to enable everybody I mean, it's essentially, to die with dignity. It's essentially how I feel about the mental health movement, right? Yeah, so, exactly. So, you know, once a year or twice a year, Twitter and Instagram is ablaze with people saying, actually, I suffer yeah. from depression. And thumbs, great. Yeah. However, there is no infrastructure to capture those people when no, they own up or when, when they're yeah. able to share their mental health yeah. concerns and it's essentially how I feel about death the, the other uh, the thing is death is so different from case to case in that I would say that the cat experienced is the wrong death okay and I and I and I say that very loosely in that I've had very elderly people who I love die and the way I have felt about that has been very different from when yes. somebody young who is it's their illness seems so unjust mm. their end seems so unjust that I've experienced them in very different ways yes. yeah and I would say that the death of Kat's husband Pat Long a very fine journalist himself um is the wrong death I would really I would struggle to be positive about that in the way that mm -hmm. I yep. struggled <laughs> to mm. be positive about my friend of cancer in her early thirties. I don't accept it, mm. and so I can't. I can't have the positive death conversation mm. that people want me to have in that way because they're not all mm. the same. A no, friend, a friend of mine, a, a different friend of mine, died from suicide in their life. It's just loads of people asking questions that can never be answered. Mm. Yes, feeling sort of racked with injustice and guilt yeah. and all of that stuff. And so I feel before we can even start on death, we have to acknowledge that death, you, you don't feel the same about no, all death. And it's, it's not commensurate kinds. with how much you love no. someone no. or how long you've known someone, is what feels fair. Cat's husband doesn't feel fair to me. Do you nope. know what I mean? And there's a lot of anger that comes with yeah. that. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of... Uh, for me, the most striking component to my experience of grief thus far has been when you lose a partner at, yeah. at any age. Um, you know, we shared a life together, a house together, and um, I was left in this world of things, yeah. Yeah. objects, um, sometimes I call it memorabilia of a life, you know, yes. scattered around... Yeah. Um, the process of very carefully going through all of that. Um, I don't actually, I mean, I, I'm a writer, I don't actually have words for it. It's the most surreal experience well, I think I've ever been through. You found them, you, though. Well, yes, you did. found them, and I think I, I remember you writing about your husband's suit that he wore for his mm -hmm. wedding and how you selected it, and, and, and that suit had had gone on a journey mm. from the store that it was bought into your wedding day and finally to 
to the funeral and I think you did you talk about the the, the funeral parlour was sort of on the street to use on the way to our local, to pub, local pub yeah and I, I, I know that when I read that I could I could kind of feel your whole relationship all the mm -hmm. love of it and then all the pain of it through that set of clothes and I thought that was an extraordinary thing to do because I felt like I suddenly glimpsed a little bit of what it was like for you then that, mm. that enormous act of picking out that suit yeah so your your father died and you experienced death on Kat's side of the coin or my side of the coin or you you became the bereaved I was just wondering did it tap into an emotion that you had previously been kind of trying to manage in other people and did it give you a greater understanding of how they were feeling? I, I, I'd go further than that. I think it transformed me as a doctor, really. Interesting. Um, and, and that's because although I, prior to my father's diagnosis, I, I, I thought of myself as a relatively empathetic doctor. I certainly tried to understand things from patients' points of view. I really believed in every day that I worked as a doctor, whether it was in a busy A&E or in the hospice, that the, the, the centre of what I did as a doctor was my patients and what mattered to them. It wasn't me, it wasn't anything else. I didn't want it to be bed pressures or any of those things, it was the patient. And I'm not sure you're necessarily taught that as a doctor at medical school, but, but I certainly felt like that. But I discovered when dad was diagnosed and then when he was died, that all that experience in palliative medicine, sort of right up close and personal with every permutation of death, dying, grief, um, sort of deaths as, as, as gentle and maybe beautiful as they could be at one end of the spectrum and harrowing and awful at the other, none of that prepared me for what I experienced, which was this kind of primal, animal, just gut-wrenching emotion that obliterated all my training, all my logic, all my rational self. And I was just a flailing mess because I loved my dad and I didn't want him to die. Yeah. And and, and I think the, the kind of, the defining moment of that was when I went to see my father for the last time and actually he was in a special suit so he was wearing <laughs> his smart charcoal suit that he always wore to weddings or fancy fancy do's and he had a special tie which was his naval tie because he'd been in the navy in his youth and it was a special naval doctor's tie because his medicine and his his naval years were important to him and I thought I was just going to kind of go and pay my respects. And I, I walked into the room where he was laid out in his coffin by myself on the morning of his funeral. And literally, before I understood what was happening, I was on the floor and I had collapsed. My legs had given way at the sight of him. And it was because the, it was just the, sh the physical shock of the grief. Yeah. And I... I was looking at him, and he looked a heck of a lot better than he had for yes, the, last, I'm sure. the last couple of months. You know, they've done an yeah. amazing job of making him, him look good. So he actually looked more like my dad than he had for a, 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 a quite a long time. And every single atom of my being couldn't stand the thought that I would never see my dad again. And I 
I was crying like it was a, um, I was vomiting tears practically. It was so visceral, this grief. And I had this crazy sensation. I, I was kissing him and, and touching his hand and touching his cheek. And I didn't care that he was cold and his flesh no. didn't feel like flesh. I, I, I wanted, and I literally wanted to climb into the coffin and hug him. I couldn't get close enough to him. And I, for a split second, I even thought of doing that. Mm -hmm. Like a grown woman in her 40s mm -hmm. climbing into a coffin. And I thought, you can't actually do this because if the coffin <laughs> breaks, <laughs> I will have created a disaster. And yeah. what, you know. But I but that's how raw it was. And, and I realised through all of that that I didn't respect what other people go through when they're grieving or when they're dying. I didn't understand the enormity of it, how violent it is, how it kind of grips you and shakes you and you, you, you're, you don't feel like a human being, or I didn't. And I, I took all of that back into work and I really felt like I understood, not necessarily precisely what someone else was feeling, but I respected mm -hmm. the potential enormity of it and I knew I had to respect it and do my utmost to work with it and, and, and help in whatever way I could. And I, I also think whether we would like to admit it or not, we all carry in us a romanticised notion of what that moment of death is going to be for, mm -hmm. for us. And yeah. I was thinking about this actually on the tube on the way here. Um, and about how, you know, we're all the protagonists in our own stories, right? You know, we're all the leading women and the leading sure. men you know, in our lives. Um, and I think we have this idea of what death is going to be like for us, what that moment is going to feel like, this, this momentous. And I use yeah. the word momentous because one of the last things that Pat said to me in his hospice bed, um, which I've actually I've not told anybody this, um, he said, uh, this isn't momentous. Three words. Hmm. I carry it with me. And I know exactly what he meant. Yeah. And it was, yes. I was expecting this moment to be something. Yeah. Yes. And I've got a cracking headache. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that's the reality. Yes. Well, a, p a painless death is another myth, I think, that, that, mm. that, we've, that we've taught ourselves. That it's now 2020. You can die yeah. in sort of pain-free bliss. And, yeah. and, of course, loads of people die in pain. Loads of people can't <laughs> have their pain taken away and, from them. And, and even if, and I, and I think this is incredibly important, and I, I wanted to try and be very honest about this in the book because we don't do anyone any favours by sugarcoating reality. Um, even a death that is physically painless, and sometimes deaths undoubtedly are physically painless, they can nonetheless be shot through with a different kind of pain yeah. that is far beyond the reach of and fear and fear and and actually if you love somebody you are opening up your heart to the most devastating pain imaginable because if you if you allow yourself to love then you are allowing yourself one day inevitably to lose this precious thing that you love and and mm -hmm. and that is sometimes the most searing pain of all. I That's Kat referenced in one of her pieces. I can't remember which one it was. Um, I think the Times, you referenced that, that one of the crumbs of comfort that you'd had was Nick Cave's yes, open letter. I was just where, about to mention yeah, where he, yeah, where he stated that it was a deal, right? It was a pact yes. Yes. that in order to love... Well, you talk about that, Kat, because you put it... You, I you had lost my up. mind uh, about... Uh, two and a half months after his death 
The other crazy thing about grief, um, and you do feel crazed, is that I was able to function uh, what what you would consider to be normally. Um, I went to the cinema. I've seen film. I can't even remember what I saw. I know I was there. I don't remember the movie. Um, I really struggled with insomnia. Um, and I'd gone to visit my friend in Spain, which uh, I think a lot of friends were a bit concerned <laughs> quite soon, a couple of months after Pat had died. But I wanted to go. I needed to get on a plane. Yeah. And I needed to fly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was struck with the worst insomnia I think I've ever had. Um, and I honestly thought I was losing my mind. There were points at like 3 a.m., which I have written about, where I, I, I honestly thought that this was a point where Pat and I were, were meeting in this sort of like celestial mm. kind of third space, yeah. you know, that Almost we could be reunited. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and a friend sent me um, a letter that Nick, actually a reply to a letter that Nick Cave had been sent uh, about his son. Mm. Um, who very tragically died. Um, and his words just, its they soothed me so much because he was saying, embrace that, um, embrace the madness. Um, you know, the, the love that you feel is equal to the grief that you're now going through. And he talks about and has talked about grief uh, as being an experience that both destroys and defines you and I think that is a very accurate way to describe it because there's a part of me who feels very privileged um, to have been given the role of looking after Pat Mm -hmm. it's my greatest I say my greatest achievement was Mm -hmm. looking after him Mm -hmm. Um, now that doesn't take away uh, the the, the pain and um, and the just anguish when that person goes um but I certainly wouldn't uh, I wouldn't take back I wouldn't say do you know what I'd rather not have experienced that at all Mm. um it was tragic um what happened um but it's testament um Mm. and it and and like Nick Cave says you know that is the pact and and no one can say in life. So I've just found the quote in your piece, in fact. Um, Nick Cave wrote in response to a question from a fan about his recently deceased son. We are tiny, trembling clusters of atoms subsumed within grief's awes- awes- awesome presence. Excuse me. It occupies the core of our being and extends through our fingers to the limits of the universe. Within that whirling gyre, all manner of madnesses exist, ghosts and spirits and dream visitations and everything else that we, in our anguish, will, in, will into existence. It seems to me that if we love, we grieve. That's the deal. That's the pact. Yeah. I, I, I can see why that was of some comfort, because that's it, right? In, it, unless we're open to love, then we're not open mm-hmm. to yeah. I yeah and I I think I use the phrase you know I took a gamble you know yes and and you have to there's there's no other way (laughs) yes there is no other way (laughs) just want to sorry at risk of trading quotes but there is a an amazing quote um from a a letter Ted Hughes um wrote a friend um which is about exactly this and I I just think about this and Nick Cave's words all the time at work and he says something along the lines of the only thing that matters in life is how much heart you invest and then he goes on to way to say how much you're willing to ignore your fears of being hurt or humiliated Mm. or found out Um, and he says the only thing people regret at the end is that they didn't invest enough heart they didn't live boldly enough they didn't love enough 
and God, it's true, isn't it's it? It's absolutely the only true. alternative mm. to the devastation that was unleashed by Pat's death was actually never to have allowed yourself to love him. And who would want to live like that? You know, we're creatures that are hardwired to love and we desperately crave love. And the deal is, it comes with grief. Um, and also there are moments, you know, even in the hospice, um, I feel um, with an experience like this where you get these like little pockets of these pure moments that um, I wouldn't even be able to give an example of, but it's just um, time slows down, even in a, in a very quick death. I mean, Pat was ill for a very long time. Um, his rapid deterioration took place over a matter of six weeks. Um, so I have a strange notion of time now. I'm still mm -hmm. kind of processing this. It's not something that I am um, <laughs> got to grips with yet. Uh, time for me has it's become so elastic uh, because we we lived with a um, this shape shifting tumor for six mm -hmm. years and everything felt like drawn out and our, all of our control was taken out of our hands and then suddenly it the tumor morphs. The medication's not working. Suddenly, out of nowhere. Suddenly, that's it. Yeah, yeah. and suddenly he's on a ward, and yeah. now we're talking about hospices, and oh yeah. God, now he's in a hospice. Uh, and that's and a really common trajectory with all all cancers, really, that it, it it can grumble along slowly, and then suddenly it starts to accelerate, and you don't quite realise you're playing catch up, and then the acceleration carries on and on, and all of a sudden you're sort of plummeting towards mm. the end, and it and it's re it can be. Very shocking. That, that has been exactly my experience three times in the last five years. Exactly that. Mm -hmm. A sort of, uh, uh, you know, a, a long, low-level anxiety, sometimes a heightened anxiety, then back to a low-level yes. anxiety, to, oh, my God, the house is on fire. Yes. And, and, and then no one's listening to me. Yeah. And, and no then things helping. accelerate so fast that, as you say, you're playing catch-up in a way that you're st you're still processing as things are unfolding 10 steps ahead it's it's a really horrifying time as you were saying cat you're nowhere near over this you'll never be over this it's you know fully it's that thing i think it was uh, stella mccartney uh, said to gwyneth paltrow when her father died you know welcome to the sad club you're always going to be a little <laughs> bit sadder than you were before <laughs> and i think that's really true i i feel a little bit sadder always Yes, than I did yeah. before people started dying. Um, particularly the younger people, not that I'm saying one size fits all, but, but mm. the younger people have have obviously hurt, hurt me the most. Um, and so although you experience joy and elation and, all, and orgasm and all the things that people, yeah. that human beings experience, you, you carry on experiencing those things, but your, your base level is a little bit sadder yes. than before, yeah. I think. My... Um but what I was going to say is, but now the fire has put out mm. and you're standing mm -hmm. in the embers and the kind of immediate crisis is over. What has fundamentally changed about you as, as much as you're comfortable in sharing? Because Rachel seems to have undergone a transformation by her own admission. What has fundamentally changed about Kat? Um, I would say we're all transforming creatures. We're transforming all of the time. Um, I would say that the second year of grief has been harder in, in a lot of ways than the first, and I don't think a lot of people um, understand that. Mm. Um, and I try to communicate that to friends, um, and I'm, you know, I'm very 
honest and open about um, what I'm going through. I had a really, really, really bad patch before Christmas and during Christmas. That was only a few months ago. Mm. I'm, you know, I've got my red lippy on today, and I've, you know, I'm feeling all right. Um, I get periods of time where I don't want to get out of bed. You know, <laughs> that's a hard thing to go through at this point. Because I felt like the first year of grief, I was so traumatised. It's like anything goes. Yeah. Yeah. I can do whatever the hell I yeah. want. No one's going to push yeah. back on me. Yeah. So I'm just going to behave in any way I feel. Yeah. There's a freedom to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now I'm in a situation where I feel like I, um, I'm yearning to move forward. I want to build on my life. I know that I need to make changes. These are all frightening, terrifying things. Um, and so I, it's like the stop and start. You know, you talk about waves of grief, but also, you know, there's no forward trajectory that takes you away from your grief, you know. There is always um, almost like a kite, you know. It's, like it's, it's, yeah. it's constantly moving. Um, and even though I've written so much about this, when you're experiencing it, I, I do put myself under a lot of pressure that I feel like, I should be more sorted by now. Well, that's what the films tell us. You mm-hmm. know, you're sad for a bit. Maybe you can have yeah. a year. And then by now, you should be dating again. And yeah. things should be sunny. And maybe you have a different haircut. And, you know, you wear different clothes now. Like, that's the sort of, we're told that that's the way. That's the pattern of grief. You have these apparent 12 steps. And then uh, you cut a fringe. You already have a fringe. But if you didn't, you would have cut one by now. And I then know, what do I do? do you, you need to grow, grow, grow <laughs> out your fringe. Grow out your fringe. Um, and then, you know, things are different. And, oh, I'm falling in love again. And, oh, okay, it's, it's just meant to be a closed chapter and you move mm. on. And so for having this second year mm. be tougher in different ways, maybe the shock has worn off. Do you know what I mean? I think like, other people don't know what to do as well. As no. much as you're struggling to know what to do next, I think other people don't know what phase two, three, four, five looks like. Yeah. It's a bit like when you first have a baby, you get tons of newborn baby grows and then nobody ever rings you again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you get, you she's get, fine now. Yeah, she's fine now. We've yeah. given her the newborn yeah, clothes she has the and, we've, and, and we fussed over her in the aftermath of the labour and now she just has a baby and so yeah, she's figured it out <laughs> and of course it's when you start to lose your mind the mm-hmm. latter mm-hmm. stages of having a baby C- certainly in my case in the beginning you're just firefighting right so you know you're if you've just had a baby you're trying to fix feeding and yeah. you're trying to keep the baby alive if you've just had someone die you are organizing a funeral and you are packing up their stuff and you're doing the stuff right that bit is relatively easy because you're not feeling you're doing Mm. but when you start feeling that's when it's really difficult and by then people think the emergency's over Mm. i tell you what i really struggle with at the moment i mean i struggle with the word widow anyway because i'm 36 and who the hell wants to be a 36 year old widow (laughs) nobody um and there's a there's there's so much that comes with that term um in everyday conversation, you know, I spent 10 years with one man in any conversation I might have down the pub with friends. Um, you know, we might talk about uh, someone's going on holiday to Morocco and I might say to somebody who doesn't know me that well, oh, um, me and my husband just out, you know, because it's there on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. Me and my husband went there. Yes. Immediately he's present. He's alive. He's in the room. Because yes. he's always going to be my husband, but I'm a widow. And I yes, think that's really difficult for me. Yeah. You have a husband who's There is dead. no term for that. No. Unless I've, you know, I'm very obvious, which I'm not going to be yeah. down the pub with somebody who I've never met before. Can, can I ask, yeah. Kat, do you feel um, on some level as though you're not allowed to be grieving now or you have to sort of... 
you have to man up now you, you've you've done your time and you need to pull yourself together because otherwise you're being sort of weak or indulgent do you have a fear of judgment from other people do you know what i do but the the, the person who's judging is me yes mm. i'm i judge me every day and it's on what exhausting. basis are your judgments i don't have anyone to compare this to yeah um and I mean, I'm quite hard on myself anyway. Yeah. But in this particular situation, I do feel like at this point, you know, I am um, wanting more in my life and um, I'm finding it hard to, um, well, I did use the term reconstruct, but I don't think mm -hmm. that's true because how could you possibly reconstruct yourself mm -hmm. after such a loss? You know, I'm never going to be the same no. again. But also that doesn't mean that I'm like this sad person. And that's the no. other thing that I really... Uh, you know, sometimes I have fun with it. I push back on it. Like, the, uh, I wrote a piece for Sunny Time Style, and that came about, talked wanted to talk about the word widow, but also, you know, how I have, um, say, used clothes as a way to yeah. be like, don't feel sorry for me. Yes. You yeah. know, I don't want that. Yes. Um, I, you know, I am Side grieving. Side is literally the worst thing <laughs> in the world. <laughs> <laughs> <Side> <laughs> I would like to make it a criminal offence. Yeah. Everybody who's ever done sidehead at me, I have wanted to kill. Like, yeah. I actually, awful. I have to say, at a party, was stroked like a sad horse. Oh, you know? like, <laughs> stroked <laughs> a <Yeah>. sad horse. <laughs> And there, sometimes there. I really there, do there. feel like the sad horse. Yeah. But no but one should I touch you in a way that yeah, makes you feel like a sad it. horse. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's also people just don't know. It, in, in my situation, I know that I am, and I do feel a bit of an anomaly, you know. I am a, quite a young person who's been through something that a lot of people don't experience until yeah. they're a lot mm, older. So I'm really aware of that. And it's not like, you know, I don't want to be bitchy about how people sort of no, res sure. respond because everyone's trying their best. Um, it's just, I don't want to be perceived in that way. You know, yes, there are days where I feel like I am dragging this grief around, you know, and it's, and it's very tiring, but you know, I also have weeks where I'm, you know, an intrinsically a very happy person who's yes. very passionate and you know knows that I have a lot more of my life to live it's just how do you even I picture think, that I think this is so key people are trying to do the right thing I I have been frustrated so both of my parents are dead I, I was frustrated by how some people reacted to both um I've had two good friends die in the past few years Carrie Lander and Deborah or and uh, Deborah very recently um both of them died much too young and I am frequently frustrated by how people handle things. I just basically want someone to go, that is shit. Yes. I just want someone to say, that is shit. I hate that that's happened. I hate that for you. I can imagine that it must be so upsetting and so anger-making. I'm really upset that that's happened to you. Yeah. And then to do something practical if needed. So to bring me some food or, you know. Yeah, ask what you need, yeah. maybe. Uh, I think asking what you need is quite tough because then, oh, then you have to kind of think of yes. something no, and you have right. to know what you need and yeah. you have to know and you what might you need, not which know. you yeah. often don't. Yeah. And I do think I do think people get it wrong and I sort of, I, I try to extol best practices as I see them having been bereaved a number of times. However, I still get things wrong. You know, I have known, uh, Rachel, that you're coming on for months, right? So I booked you ages and ages ago. Mm. I have been wanting to ask Kat to come on for about six weeks. 
And I couldn't contact her. I couldn't do it because I didn't... Because I admire her as a journalist writing about a variety of things. I really hated that I was going to be saying, can you come on and talk about your husband's death? Because I didn't want her to think that I saw her yes. as yeah. a widow. And you were yeah. really and worried about I was that. really worried yeah. about it yeah. because I thought, she's a peer of mine, a colleague. Whatever. I don't want her to think that I just see her as the widow. When in fact, I don't. I see her as a journalist, a writer, someone interesting to talk, someone interesting to have on. But I was so self-conscious about Kat thinking, I think she's the woman whose husband died. Yeah, yeah. And it's that's, difficult. Yeah, that's actually really... Um, I was really surprised when you sent that email because I was like, well, of course I'll come on. Um, it was really I mean? lovely for you to say it. And I think I have been a bit self-conscious recently that I don't... Uh, I think people tend to remember the pieces of writing where you uh, pen very personal essays about. Yes. I actually haven't written that many. Um, they are the ones that obviously people hold close because they're dealing they in topics that... And, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, you know, part of that whole kind of... Uh, re-embracing my life again is kind of you know how does that look how does working life look for me you know I, I also really like you I want to um, address this because I feel this topic is um, it's too important Absolutely. to let go and, and I mean this is so interesting because everything you've just talked about Sally and, and Kat in reference to grief I think to some extent applies to people as they're approaching the end of their life, when they're interesting, to talk die about as well. that so because I suppose I'm never, I've never put myself yeah. in that position. So, so, so I have exceptionally candid conversations every day with people who are dying, and it is easy to assume that somehow dying people are a different order of being. They're this yeah. alien species. They're different to us. We're healthy living people. I think that's they really are dying wise. people. Yeah, and of course. That's rubbish. Dying people are people just like any other people and they are every bit as in need of comfort, love, laughter, jokes. Um, they are every bit the personality, not always, but often the personality they were before. They get pissed off by the same things. They joke about the same things. From the moment Donald Trump um, horrifically became president, my dad and I never had a conversation where we didn't make reference to that um and he did that to my days mother before he died. my mother the last time i saw my mother which was about a week before she died which was only two years ago she was fuming still about brexit exactly. and i just thought <laughs> i just thought you're yes. actually not going to be here actually you're not yeah. going to experience brexit she was fuming absolutely yeah. frothing well i can go one 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 way worse than that sally my father, who voted for Brexit, triumphantly died knowing it was happening. <laughs> in the face of his daughter's considerable wrath, which I couldn't even express because he had cancer. <laughs> um, and we joked about that. But but so so I meet people every day who are dying, and and everyone is tiptoeing around them because they don't want to say the wrong thing, do the mm. wrong thing, be clumsy or clunky. And actually, sometimes the kind of conversation I have will be, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing, Bob? And Bob will say, oh, I'm just feeling really pissed off today. And I will say, oh, yeah, why is that? Why are you pissed off today? And he'll say, because bloody Boris Johnson <laughs> is going to be the new prime minister. And actually, the fact that he knows he's in the last couple of weeks of his life it's not the thing he's thinking about at the moment. He wants to have a chat about Boris Johnson. But what do you say if you pass his bed and you say, 
how are you feeling today? And he says, I'm really pissed off today. And you say, why? And he says, because I'm going to die. What do you say? So here's the thing. Because everyone yes. in your work setting knows he's going to die. Yes. So I will sit down. And the most important thing you can do, I think, is to not flinch away from that. Mm -hmm. So there isn't, there is nothing you can say that is going to make that better. Here is somebody in the last weeks of their life and they know they're going to die very quickly and every fibre of their being doesn't want to. Yeah. You can't make that better. Yeah. But what you can do is not flinch from it. You can sit down and you can be there in the moment with that person and you you don't have to say anything clever all you need to say is yeah yeah it's mm. shit yeah. isn't it that's it and i think particularly I, people tend to like doctors when they swear i hope that's true yeah <laughs> yeah it's like hearing like, a teacher who doesn't yeah. love a sweary yeah. doctor <laughs> I'm, I'm a doctor who swears and implies my patients with alcohol because i think often oh, for many but you're the best like, doctor if you that was the best part of the day in the hospice yeah. the drinks trolley yeah, yeah. <laughs> drinks trolley is so much more important. what a wonder yeah right <laughs> they're drinks um, yeah but yes. if you can sit with somebody and say yeah it's shit Suddenly, you're just having the same kind of conversation that you'd have with your mate in the pub. Yeah. And then you say, what's, what's particularly shit about today? And then suddenly, your patient may say, I'm thinking about my children. Yeah. And they're going to have grandchildren one day. And I'm never going to see them grow up. Yeah. And they might cry about that. And if all you say is, yeah, that's really shit that's okay you don't have to say anything cleverer than that this is it's basically this all i ever want to hear if something unavoidably horrific is about to happen that is literally all i want to hear yeah. someone say is jesus christ yeah. that is shit yeah. don't try and, to fix mm. it for me or lie exactly yeah don't spin it there's no spin because no, yeah, exactly. that's what you said you said there's no point in sugarcoating anything and particularly when you're talking about children and i I think that that uh, is really interesting when it comes to death because there's so many painful, hideous parts of it. But I think this idea that you should just be straightforward with people. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes I think being straightforward, you, it doesn't mean you can't say things that might be helpful. They're just never going to take yeah. away the pain. Yeah. So, for, for instance, uh, something I often say with, with families who are, you know, are, are, will often have separate conversations with families. Yeah. Even if a patient is very deeply unconscious, we always assume that they might be able to Yes. Out. So you'll sit down and you'll have a very open conversation somewhere else. Yeah. And sometimes you'll be in a room and, you know, the patient may be 22 and their parents and their boyfriend and so lots of people are in the room and they're all just heartbroken and they're crying and they're devastated. And sometimes I'll try and say things not because I'm trying to fix it, but because I just think they're true. And, and one of the things I will sometimes say in that situation is, I, I know that this is horrific and there is nothing that can take that away, but I want you to know something really important. Right now you're focused on the death, the dying that is filling this room, but I don't see that. I know that this person is dying mm. but what I see in the room is not the death I see the love mm -hmm. and mm. I see all of you surrounding this person mm -hmm. by love and they could not have more love around their bedside and sometimes that can be a helpful thing to say not because it's making it more bearable 
but because they yeah. know it's true. They're yeah. giving something it's the truth. that means more than anything else. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I, no, I, I think another thing that I'm really honest about um, and I have specifically put in pieces because I want other people who've been through this experience to read it. Um, it's actually quite uncommon to be with the person when they pass away, yeah. right? Yeah. We don't talk about this. And yeah. it can feel like a failing that somehow your instincts yeah. didn't well, tell you're meant you to make it. That, you're that meant that to would be yeah. momentous. Whole, yeah, momentous. That you're supposed to be there. Yeah. 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 So I wasn't with my husband when he died. Um, I was at home. I was asleep. Um, so that was a bit of a... <laughs> A weird one for me to sort of process. Yes. Yeah. Because you've seen the films, right? Yeah. yeah. You weren't expecting yeah. a phone call. Yeah. 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 And it's it's you know, it's it's in the books, it's in yeah. the film, it's mm-hmm. in T V. Yeah. It's how we expect things to go. And it just isn't, it like isn't. that no. often. And actually almost more um uh capable of provoking uh dreadful guilt in people is the fact and again this rarely appears in the films, it's rarely talked about. Quite often People don't want to be there at the end. They cannot yes. Yes. be there. And I think and, that's fine. And, 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 yeah. and yeah. they will say to us in the hospice, they will be just racked with guilt. And saying, think you think they're I terrible. Am I an awful person? Mm. Am I a cruel person because I don't want to be there? And, of course, we mm. don't think that at all and say so. But people don't know that. It's okay to be unable to bear mm. being beside the person you love when they it's die. It's such a tough conundrum. I mean, because I, I, I go through that um, evening, his last evening, a lot because it's the last time I, I saw him. But, you know, I was in the room thinking about whether I should stay or not stay and I knew the time was coming. Mm. The nurse advised me that she didn't think it didn't look like it was going to happen tonight. I think you need to go home and get some rest. You know, there was a chair in the room. I could have stayed. Um, I decided to leave. I met a very good friend of mine um, down the pub, just down the road from the hospice. I sometimes think about that. We were sharing a bottle of wine I mean, not having a great time or anything. <laughs> <laughs> like it's been a really long day. It's a lovely uh, time. Yeah. If ever there were a necessary bottle. Right? Yeah. No, yeah. shit. I was thinking, good for you. Yeah. So um, we were drinking wine and I was talking about this with her. Should I go back or should I just go home? And the idea that he was dying down the road as I was in the yeah. pub doing that. Um, it's this the everydayness of it. And yeah. that juxtaposition of the everydayness and the in inverted commas, momentousness, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How could you have been drinking wine in the pub while that was happening? Mm-hmm. Precisely because that is what happens. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's life, isn't it? Yeah. That, it? That is life. We have this kind of almost like still Victorian kind of view of death, I think, yeah. and like yeah. how things should be. And, yes. and how it needs to be. Tons yeah. of people crowded around a bed yes. Yes. and saying, we love you, we love you. And, and somebody's wearing a white nightdress. And <laughs> it's Someone's almost a candle. Also, also like the Queen Victoria vibe, you know. Yes. I'm going to grieve. I'm going to wear black of for my, the rest yeah. of my life. I'm going to grieve physically every day. Yeah. Um, and if you don't do that, it means that you didn't love that person enough. And yes, it's just not exactly. true. It's just and, not true. And, and you might be judged, God forbid you should wear red lipstick after your husband has died. I, re- I wore red lipstick and red boots at my husband's funeral. Yes. Perfect. And that was, uh, we I think that was away, a finger up. We gave yeah. away red lipsticks at my friend's uh, funeral. Um, we got... Um, 150 of her red lipstick and everybody Amazing. took one away. Oh, I love that. It's, it's so hard. I, I, 
I think, and I'd be interested in in your views on this, I think that kind of all you can do in the aftermath in terms of arrangements is just try and be guided by the person who's not there to speak, right? Yeah. yeah. And if somebody, if your husband thought you looked great in red lipstick and that's the woman he loved, then that that's yeah. right, isn't it? But yeah. also, you just have to dress. And like if that's Queen what Victoria, makes you that's feel, okay. yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. yeah, and if that's what makes you feel able to face the bloody thing, the horrible thing, then that's what you must do. Yeah, mm. there there are some well-intended but problematic um, words around all of this. I mean, the whole idea of a good death, I find very problematic <laughs> because um, something on paper. So, so my father's death was the good the textbook good death uh -huh. he was at home he didn't want to be in a bed upstairs he had his hospital bed downstairs it was christmas his grandkids were crawling over him and opening their presents um, and he just quietly died beneath the grandfather clock and he had his his wife his kids his grandkids never ever was alone in the last few days of his life it was absolutely beautiful and certainly the textbook good death and it was simultaneously the most harrowing, gut-wrenching thing in the world. Um, because for me, he's the person I've loved the most who has died. And I think in a way, the language around a good death, we must all aspire to a good death, is can sometimes put pressure on patients. Yes. They almost feel as though if they're so angry or bitter or regretful or, or any of the normal emotions that accompany anything bad happening to us they're somehow being a bit self-indulgent they've got to sort of conform to these high ideals of the good death but honestly in exactly the same way that a bit of whale music and lavender oil does not make childbirth pain-free so too <laughs> I mean well it's a bit like a birth plan it isn't it it's just not going to go that way I, mean, I keep drawing comparison with with yeah. new motherhood but it's so similar it's the beginning of life and the end of life there are so many similarities. Yeah, they're bloody and visceral. And I know, just like Kat wanted to wear red boots and red lipstick, I know that when I was giving birth or when people were dying, Lavender Island Whale Song would have made me murderous. Like, <laughs> murderous. That doesn't feel like you're alive. the worst Absolutely. thing yeah. you could do to me in a time of anguish. Read your horoscope. Yeah. Like, Read at any time, yeah. really, to be fair. At but. any time, yeah. <laughs> Particularly, I would draw blood yeah. if and somebody... a badly timed head tilt might have made <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> well, because when I was giving birth, I remember screaming, don't touch me, as my husband yeah. approached yes. my feet. How to dare massage. you? Yeah. I just became very cat-like, and, and you well, just yeah. have to go with who you and are. This, this idea of a good death, it's kind of a euphemism, because how can, how can it really Well, you're be fucking gentle? dying. You're dying, and you're either someone who is watching the love of your life die, or you're somebody who is having to leave every single thing and every yes. single one you love in this gorgeous beautiful magnificent world of ours and you can't surely do that in a chilled out calm way can you 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 can accept it you can um accept that this happens to all of us and we live in a cycle and it comes to an end but it's it's not gentle well none of us live like that so no. dying like that is quite asking it's asking yes. quite a lot and it, this also doesn't sort of this idea of a good death um some people aren't particularly loved some people right. are strange for them with their families sometimes people that were technically close to 
uh, die, and we have very, very complicated feelings well, about them. Well, some people were very loved, and they're the last man standing. That, yes. that happens a lot. Yeah, that happens yeah. too. So, And sometimes people die that you actually know that on paper you should love, but it, and you don't. You don't. You don't feel yeah. anything, uh-huh. or you yeah. actually feel hate, and, yeah. and all of that. It's so co- it's so complicated, and yeah. that doesn't fit into this movie style way of dying yeah. and grieving. It's just it's it's actually really really unrealistic, and I think adds so much pressure on people to act yeah. a certain way. So uh, I, I don't know how I would act if if I had was in the room with my father when when he died, or my husband. I don't know how. Um, if I would, if my knees would buckle and I would fall to the floor, I don't, I don't know how I, how I would react. And mm. but I know for sure I'd be wondering if I'm cor- acting the right way. Mm. There's also <laughs> I would have that voice. There's no perfect way. There's, there's no such thing as a perfect carer. And that's the other yeah. thing yes, to talk about. It's yeah. so complicated. Um, and I went through certain um, situations that made me feel like I wasn't up to scratch. I wasn't quite doing it the way that are I you, should be. Are you happy to share an example? Mm, yeah. Um, so when he was brought into the hospital, so um, at the point where he started to deteriorate, um, he had epilepsy as a, yes. um, as a byproduct of the tumour um, and he had a stroke, which we didn't know was a stroke at the time. So um, he went into hospital and he spent quite a few weeks on, on a ward because we couldn't find him a, a hospice bed. And I remember there was one day that I came in and um, he hadn't had a shower and um, I just kind of uh, sort of motioned to the nurse and I said, oh, I think Pat would really like to sort of just get showered up. And she just said in passing, and I'm sure she didn't mean it in an awful way, but she said, oh, usually the wives like to do that. And I was like, oh, oh. bad wife. <laughs> bad wife, bad carer, you know, that yeah. I didn't have that instinct that I wanted to do it. And you know what? I didn't that no. day. Yeah. I didn't want to do it. No. But maybe he didn't want Ex- you to. That's yeah. exactly what I was Maybe thinking. he didn't want you to either. I, it, most of the people who in my life who have died would have, absolutely hated me to shower them yeah mm. yeah would have hated it yep. and i completely respect and understand people who do want a loved yeah. one to shower them but the notion that the right way is that lots of wives like to do this is ludicrous because actually the person the person you're feeling guilty about the person who matters most in this situation mm. the person who is at the end of his life is the person who, who matters the mm. most and may not even want that yeah. it's also sexist as well because of course it is of course it is nobody would say that to a husband to a husband no, no. Yeah. it was a bit of a it did feel a bit of a, a dagger and also i i was learning on the job you know course, I, I was thrown into a very uh, extreme yeah. um a very extreme experience um, without sort of any training. Yeah. I think that's also an interesting part of it for me, and this and this would apply to you certainly more than me and more than most people in that the person that you literally shared your life with died and you became their carer towards the end is that in terms of kind of moving on, working out what you want, who you are, changes you need to make, the thing that nobody talks about is that your life is essentially in stasis while they're ill, right? Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. don't... Mm-hmm. Yeah. develop do anything no. because yeah. it's an emergency yeah. right you yeah. have to nurse your husband mm-hmm. to the end of his life so presumably you're not really thinking about you for ages which is quite an unusual 
things are happening yeah. in life. You're and all about somebody else, which is not normal. That's no, and also I find I find it difficult to express this because I feel like maybe people won't understand when I say something like I lost myself. Of course, yeah. For not just six weeks, I lost myself for many, of many course. years. Um, I completely wrapped myself around what was happening, um, and um, that came first, and it had to come first. Um, and because of that, I, towards the end, I did, didn't recognise. I didn't recognise my husband. I didn't recognise myself. I didn't recognise the life that we were mm. in. You um, probably didn't even know what you needed by then because everything had been focused on him. No, and I still don't because on the yeah. flip side of that, it gave me purpose and structure. Yes, yes. yes it's and a job, now isn't that's it? been yeah. wrenched away. You know that um, I I was in that caring role, mm. and I. Th- thought I did it well you know yeah, I can yeah. say I did mm. that well so in yeah. a way you're doubly bereft because you've lost your husband and you've lost your job mm-hmm. caring for him yeah your purpose your yeah. value and, all and I don't think we talk about that very much no, no. I think when Sally earlier when you were talking about um the the house is burned down and you're kind of left in the embers um I've, I've been very lucky I guess is the word I don't know in in the sense of uh, I've lost all of my grandparents now, um, two of which I was really close to. But my my husband, when we met, his dad had died mm, probably about five years prior. And so I all I've ever known of my husband and my in-laws is the embers. Mm. And I thought, I think, because I was so young when we met, I thought that they, oh, well, it's been... You know, it's been a few years. Like they're they're yeah. past it. They're kind of in a different phase. And what I've learned is I've just kind of had to realize, oh no, yeah. <laughs> the they're they're all very much in a different. I've just kind of experienced. I've never met my father-in-law. I've just experienced um, the sort of aftermath and the sort of different paths that everyone have been uh, unexpectedly taken down. Mm-hmm. And it's like you were talking about the wedding suits. Uh, my experience of the wedding suit is finding it in the loft and kind of rescuing it from it being tossed out. Um, so we have it in our loft now. Yes. Uh, but it's a, it's a really interesting thing, kind of experiencing the bereavement of an entire family and the grief of an entire family. Um, and also aspects of it moving on and, and grandchildren being born and people being remarried. And um, weirdly, I get very upset about this man that I never even met. Because you you see the you see the fallout, you d- things are never the same again, and I think that's another really important thing that mm. we allow ourselves really mm. to just say, actually, I'm irrevocably changed. And mm. aren't all the most profound, extraordinary experiences of life like that? Things yes, are of never course. the same again after you of have course. a baby. They're never the same again after you have got married even if you end up getting divorced it's sure. never the same again oh and, divorce and is another one yeah exactly i grieved yeah. more over my divorce yeah. than i have over some deaths you know yeah. it depends on the situation yeah, but 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 there's something i i don't know i i i wouldn't want the world to be any different i wouldn't want to inhabit a world where we weren't immutably changed by these experiences because they're so clearly the things that matter and they drive us and i I don't know exactly how you navigate your way, cats, to a new you and a new path, but it's almost, I forgive me if this sounds uh, clunky, but it is testament to Pat and your relationship 
that it's this hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. how much he mattered in your life. Yeah. And that's a magnificent legacy. Doesn't make it any easier. No, it now. doesn't. But I, I, I do take comfort from that. I, yeah. I, I do. Um, it's not a platitude. I, I feel it every day. Um, he was, a, you know, a great love. Maybe yeah. the great love of my life. Mm. Um, and there's no shortcuts with that. Yes. There are none. Um, and it's still can feel very raw you know why christmas was so hard and because yeah, uh, it, it suddenly can just hit me yeah. and also you'd be walking down the street and i'm like no that's not right yeah <laughs> actually mm. not cool with that yeah <laughs> I mean, it's not really like, not yeah, yeah. <laughs> wrong timeline yeah. yeah where am i i found um i think think the thing uh, not that what i've experienced is anything like what cat has experienced um I think guiltlessly feeling furious was a very big thing for me. Mm. It was a very, very mm. big thing. Actually, there was there was one day, um, I mean, there are loads and loads of things I could say about this time, but they're kind of private because they involve other people. But one thing that happened to me when um, my friend was dying and I was spending half of every week for the last kind of six weeks in Glasgow mm. and staying in hotels, and my husband, my then boyfriend, now husband, uh, came with me one weekend and we were staying in this hotel and I got up early to go to, I think, hospital, not hospice at that point. Mm. And, I mean, the end was nigh. I think it was probably two weeks before she died or something or ten days before she died. And um, I got up and got showered and stuff and left the hotel room and I looked down at the next door hotel room and they had had their paper delivered and they'd had the Daily Mail delivered and on the front of the Daily Mail was a quote from, I won't even give her the honour of mentioning her, but a quote from some like dreadful troll for hire, like some like mm, revolting, revolting yeah. um, journalist in inverted commas, yeah. mm -hmm. um, like a really disgusting quote. And I stood on the kind of doorstep of my hotel room and I glanced across and I saw this paper and I just shouted, shouted. And my then boyfriend opened the door and he was like, what? And I was like, why is she alive? Like, why is this bitch alive? <laughs> yeah. Why yeah. is this bitch no, alive? I... And my friend is dying. Yeah. I'm really, really pissed off. Yeah. How is my friend dying when this absolute piece of garbage yeah. is still alive? Yeah. And I went to the hospital, the hospital, wherever she was at that point. And I thought, do you know what? Fine. That is just how I feel. And that continues to be how I feel on and off. Mm. You know, I, I it's every, now and then, every now and then I'm absolutely infuriated that some people get to live yeah. who don't mm. deserve to live. No. And yeah. she didn't And it can get feel quite live. a violent thought, can't it? It's I sometimes have it on the tube with like some dickheads it's on the tube and I'm like, oh my <laughs> yeah, God. Thank God you're here. <laughs> yeah. You're really benefiting really everyone around you. But you must think, well, Pat wouldn't do that. He wouldn't say yeah. that. And he'd have a word with you for saying that to the dickhead. Which the is what I mean about where the anger comes from. Because yeah. I, I do feel very angry because, um, and I know everyone says this about the people that they're closest to, but he was the most spectacular, phenomenal person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, his mind was extraordinary. It's That's what I fell in love with. Mm. If you were to ask me what I miss the most, what I mourn the most in my life, it's the conversations we're mm. never going to have. Yeah. Uh, and that's very very hard and and memory's difficult because you know there are things that I try and remember things that he'd said and it's and it and it's slightly gone I can't quite yeah, grasp yeah, it and yeah. it feels like therefore a part of him is gone because mm. I can't pinpoint those yeah, memories because yeah. well, I feel like that's all we have and this yeah. is no. yeah I'm memories and memorabilia you know yeah. that's all yeah. we're left with you want to be yeah. able to touch it don't you mm. and and mm. it slips mm. and in a way I think this is another example of where the sort of 
um, the easy glib rhetoric around this subject just doesn't match up to the reality so so we're meant to accept that everyone grieves in a different way it's individual you know however you need to do it for you that's wonderful that's cool and we embrace it all but actually I think there are acceptable forms of grief and it's and actually there are acceptable forms of dying and then there are unacceptable forms yes and and you know when you're dying the acceptable way to do it is to be at peace with yourself and ideally having some transcendent experiences about the nowness of the oh, moment yes. um you're not meant to be consumed with bitter rage no. and fury but some people are and that's how it is and then likewise with grief I think a great many people are consumed with wild, crazy mm, mm. animal fury, which to me seems because to be a very understandable. She was thirty-six, yes. like it's infuriating. Yes. Yeah. And, but but actually, in this sort of nice, sanitized um, language around death and dying, yeah. does anyone say? You are allowed to scream blue murder and decapitate teddy bears and yeah. do whatever no. you need yeah. to. Mm. I just don't know that people do. And actually, if you behave like that, and sometimes, you know, we will witness this in the hospice. I remember once uh, the pretty much the whole family of a, a woman who was in her 90s, so unsurprisingly died. They were throwing themselves onto the floor in grief. She was this sort of matriarch of the family. And this was before I went through grief with they my dad. They don't sound very British. No, I, no, I was thinking, I was like, hmm, were they American? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was pro pro properly, yeah. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Because I think the, particularly there's this other, like, cultural layer on top of everything. Yeah, yeah no, British where, people are appalling. Yeah. Can, yeah, I mean, like, I can't imagine, yeah, the anger in particular yeah. voicing but, that. But that is such a common way of expressing grief and, and especially and I, what I, did you do were you momentarily alarmed by it so worse than that and I, and I write, wrote about this in the book because I wanted to be honest about it it's worse than that I was alarmed by it but also I was judgmental about it and I was actually thinking holy mother of Christ yeah. can you stop making that noise <laughs> there's another woman in the next bed who's still dying and she doesn't want to hear this hysteria right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah you can understand that yeah. Yeah. so it was That's coming from enough. a place of but I was very judgmental and I sort of you know I, I knew I couldn't do it but I really wanted to sort of open the door and say can you keep it down please <laughs> please turn your grief people. down to about a yeah. four <laughs> but actually if you if, if, if you don't positively encourage people to know that however they express their grief is okay and mm. nothing to be ashamed of and something that we as a society can handle, mm. then aren't we just suppressing people? Well, uh, no one prepared me for the raw physicality, viscerality of grief. No. No, no one. Yes. I was not prepared for it. It frightened me. I felt out of control. I mean, the first piece that I wrote about my grief was for the Pool Women's website yeah. that Kate and I worked um, in the office together um, and that was written very soon afterwards, about yeah. a couple of months. People were very mm. surprised that I, I think wrote. It was like, I remember it was like, it's been like 52 days. Yes, or it's something. been 52 days since yeah. my husband died. I'm homesick for him. Yeah. Because uh, that's that what it felt like well. yeah, homesickness. Yeah. But also, the um, I wanted to understand these ugly, what I perceive to be ugly symptoms. So, yes. why am I throwing up? when I haven't eaten anything that's upset me and shaking and yes. you know snotty nose and these are the Why things do we don't talk about body? yes no one tells you that and in those early days I would often be on the floor I'd often be on the floor 
I've tried to sort of rationalise this uh, recently about because I was reading about how sort of time passes more slowly on the floor than up high and I wonder whether that's why I was pulled down uh, because I felt safer there Uh, but I spent a lot of time on the bathroom floor um, because I felt just sick just sick to my stomach Um, and again we have this romanticised notion of like I think I even referenced the pre-Raphaelites and as a young girl I'd always go to the Tate and be like this is love and romance it's like there's beauty to grieving and loss and death and there is um but it can also be uh frightening and uh it can be uh this uncontrollable uh animalistic is the word you used and and that's that's very accurate oh yes yeah being physically undone deranged by these emotions is I, i think it you know, you experience that when you fall in love, mm. and mm. it's a it, it can and that can also be an incredibly terrifying mm. experience yeah. because yeah. it's beyond yeah. it's completely beyond your control. But at least it's positive. It's meant to be positive. It's exciting. People talk promise. about it. They I write songs about it and poems. Exactly. And I don't well, think there's full of promise. It's the your, beginning. Your, your spouse, your spouse dying young, and there is no getting away from the fact that this was young. Mm. Um. You're, you're not mourning a past only. You're also mourning a future, aren't you? And, yeah. and that is the most painful thing, surely. It's like when I, you know, I always wonder how people get over it when their child dies because you're mourning both a past and a yeah. future. And that's too much. And that's yeah. the shock. You know, I woke up, um, I wrote about this in the pool piece, um, yeah. a couple of weeks after my husband died, I woke up on my hands and knees on the bed and I was ripping back um, the bed covers and the sheets. I was looking for him. I was actually looking for him on my hands and knees. Mm. Um, and I was in this dream state. And when I woke up, I realised what I was doing. Mm. Uh, how do you... It's th- that's much. when I felt like, mm. uh, who am I? Yeah, I don't even know, mm. you yeah. know. Um, and I think these are the things that I think if we talk more about these things and mm. say, do you know what? It's okay. And And I think there are... I think one thing that really helps is just having conversations like this because you don't know what's normal unless you hear other people talking about it. But also I I do think now um, there is an enormous amount of literature and and kind of artistic representation of of grief and death and dying that just didn't exist even 20 years ago. And I'm thinking of things like Max Porter's amazing book grief is the thing with feathers and Mm. max porter himself lost Mm. Mm. a parent when he was a little boy and this book is about two little um twin boys who lose their mother in max porter's case it was his father and um the uh surviving dad is a ted hughes scholar and ted hughes used to uh, write his collections Mm. of books about crows and this sinister black crow figure appears and kind of causes chaos and bedlam and quite a lot of fear and disturbance in their household. And um, you never entirely know what he is, but he's this dark, visceral, whether he's a metaphor for their feelings or he's a way of helping them through their feelings, he's kind of violent and angry Mm. and he threatens them Mm. and he makes them scream. And ultimately he is um, a beautifully inventive way of capturing this madness and Mm -hmm. chaos of Mm -hmm. grief and this family sort of trying to get through mm. a little bit to the other side of it so at least they can function um, in part. 
and I think books like this maybe are a wonderful way to glimpse what grief is like if you're a friend and you want to want to understand what your friend is going through for instance and another one is um there's a Patrick Ness novel A Monster Calls which got made into a movie mm. and it's about um a boy I think he's about 12 or 13 whose mum is dying of cancer and it's again about this maelstrom of emotions that he's feeling and doesn't understand and can't express and he they manifest themselves with him getting into fights with kids at school and it's one of the most incredible books about mm. grief and death and what it is like for a family to go through bereavement I have ever read from the point of view it's of interesting story. that you should mention books I, I read voraciously um, in the first few months after Pat died I read every book I could I was trying to be a journalist in my own life, investigate what was happening yeah. to me. And the yes. only way I could do that was through uh, Joan Didion and um, mm. Joyce Carol Oates yes. wrote um, A Widow's Tale. Yeah, and I, I, I lapped it up. Yeah. I went to science books. I went, uh, in the madness, I was, I was trying to research. I, I really, really want to talk about that because I think, not that I know Cat well at all, but I think that's a journalist trick. But let's come back to it because I want to put a re I'm going to put a record on because I would normally have played about six. I was going to say the last Sally, the <laughs> last time we waited this long really was when we were talking about Fleabag, which <laughs> yes. I think really yes. says something. It's still Fleabag and grief, to, yeah. come and on. also Fleabag and funerals. Yes. yes. Oh, so normally I would have played uh, loads of music by yeah. now. I put together a playlist of... <laughs> a death um, list. Of, well, I put together a playlist of songs that are about life and, and yes. the affirmation of life. And I would have played loads by now, yep. but you, you're all being really interesting. So I'm going to put one on, let's catch our breath. But I want to talk about what Kat's talking about because I've, this is a thing. Mm. As a fellow journalist, this is a thing. Uh, let's oh, have some um, elbow. <laughs> That was One Day Like This, obviously, by Elbow. Um, I had a really big playlist of life-affirming songs, but um, today's guests um, that Kate and I have on have just been, um, <laughs> they've just been too interesting. Yeah. Uh, to recap, we have Dr. Rachel Clark, writer of the brilliant <laughs> memoir, Dear Life, A Doctor's Story of Love and Loss. Uh, Rachel specialises in palliative care and works in the hospice um, and is a former journalist, which is kind of like the perfect storm on this subject yes. <laughs> um, because it's written so beautifully. So good. And we also have Kat Lister, who is a journalist. I think she basically writes for everyone I write for. Um, and her... Um, <laughs> 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 what did that mean? <laughs> I could list a load of publications, but I yeah. just figure if you're listening to this, you know who I write for. You know who Let's just is. basically say she I writes thought, for everybody that I write for. You know, Kat. You meant you were arch rivals on her days one. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, I hate her. That's why I've got her off. This is actually what the next half hour is all about. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, she basically <laughs> writes for <laughs> kind of quite liberal newspapers and women's magazines. Always liberal. Always liberal. Um, her um, husband, Pat Long, also a very fine journalist. Um, died the year before last and so we've been talking about death and it's been so so interesting when we left you and put uh, the last record on we were talking about how Kat had consumed writing on death and I find that very interesting because this is what kind of quite cerebral people do right so they binge on Joan Didion or Ariel Levy or, or whatever mm -hmm. 
why was that helpful to you and what do you think you were doing because I've done that too and I yeah um I couldn't find what I needed in everyday conversation I was looking for um context um I was looking to understand um these uncontrollable feelings that were running through me like we were talking about the the viscerality and and the physicality of grief um so like like we were saying in my job the, the first thing you do is um you go to what is it that Joan Didion says you go to the books you go to the literature yeah that's what you do and that's what I did um and I just bought book upon book um and so it started off um with um, what you would consider to be death memoir though I, I hate that term um so Joan Didion and Joyce Carol Oates C.S. Lewis um wrote a brilliant um very small book uh, called A Grief Observed um which was him battling with his Christianity after the death of his wife mm. um that really spoke to me um so I lapped up all of that um I went to the welcome library um I wanted to read about how other cultures dealt with death um, don't ask me why. I started to research what animals did <laughs> because I was mad. Um, I just wanted to seize that topic and explore every every conceivable avenue of it so that I could somehow try and gain some control um, when I felt so out of control, mm. I was I was losing it. Um, and it, it, it was the only thing that gave me comfort, um, these books. Um, I also read a lot about time and I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm awful at science. I was never interested in quantum physics. I started reading books about that because as I was saying previously, my, my notion of time completely warped to the point where I could understand these theories about sort of, you know, future, past, present, all existing in, in the one yeah. moment. And when a person dies, you know, I was thinking about where Pat had gone, you know, uh, Pat yeah. was cremated um, and um, some of his ashes I scattered um in the River Thames, near to where we had one of our first dates. That's what he asked for. Um, My best friend rowed me in a boat. um, And I scattered um, his ashes on the water. And I had a very uh, profound experience of watching um, him move in the water. Which sounds very hippie, but I think I'm allowed that. No, it's beautiful. You feel what you feel. It's beautiful. Um, And so I wanted to understand that a bit better because it kind of looked quite cosmic so I was like oh this kind of mirroring in the universe and so I started to read about that um it made sense to me I mean it might not make sense to everyone to do that but it does I mean it's just it's so inexplicable what happens and the chance the chance that just by what some chemical something Mm -hmm. that uh then he had this tumor in his Mm -hmm. brain it's just it it's so by chance and like I said it before like oh we're on the wrong timeline like yeah. like what like why did that happen and it's like trying to gather all this information and understanding time and space and where does he go and where am I and who are we now and yeah. it, it's you're just kind of in a way almost searching for an answer of how this possibly could have fucking happened and there are no answers nope no it's there some bullshit it's some bullshit mm. it's a, it's some unacceptable yeah. bullshit and there is no reason beyond no. that you, mm. there is no. a, it, it's a horrible horrible chance occurrence of some absolute bullshit that just set fire to your life mm. and, and that's what it is mm-hmm. and I think what 
I think what writers do in particular, first of all, if you're a writer, you are an observer by nature. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very important facet of your personality. Because I've read all of those books. I haven't read the quantum physics books. I'm not going <laughs> to <laughs> Honestly, I would, I'm not, not going to shit you here, Kat. I have not read the quantum physics books. But, but I've read all the grief books, right? Yeah. And, and for me, it was exactly that. It's, okay, I need to exert some control over this and I need reason because mm. I don't, because I know I can understand how I think, I can't understand how I feel. Yep. And so I was looking for people to access my heart via my brain. Mm -hmm. And I and this was a very, very crucial thing for me. And actually, a few bereavements down the line, um, I still don't have the answers. And, th and this is something I feel quite guilty about saying, by and large. I actually don't know what grief is because I don't mm. understand what people mean when they say it. So mm. whenever people have died, so the first major, major death was my father six weeks after I'd given birth. And for the first time, and people kept saying to me, make sure you grieve, make sure you grieve, make sure you give yourself time to grieve. What does and that mean? What, is, what, yeah, what is that? And it started to make me mental on top of mental mm. in that I just didn't know what they meant. Mm. I didn't yeah. know what they were telling me to do. Were they telling me to cry all the time? Were they telling me to be very still and silent? I, I don't know what that process looks like. And each grieving process for me has been yeah. very different. Yeah. And I find this... It's sort of a catch-all term, isn't it? Make sure you grieve or, you know, allow yourself a grieving mm. period, a mourning period. What does that mean? And, and mm. where have these phrases come from? Because right. it's almost a stock repertoire of phrases that people, I think, think they have to use. Their platitudes. Their platitudes. And again, it comes from this impulse, a really good impulse of people wanting to say the right thing, wanting to help, but actually reaching for a sort of culturally acceptable cliché give yourself time to grieve and I suppose that's a, a way of saying give yourself time care for yourself just put yourself first all of those things but it ends up being an I imagine utterly infuriating platitude mm. and as a writer I've um, felt infuriated by language and the limitations yes. of it and I felt like I wanted to find this new way of yeah. of talking and writing about it and I think maybe for some people the way that I have written about grief can be quite uh, challenging you know yeah. it's it's very visceral but my whole ethos was if you're going to ask me what this yeah. is here yeah. you go this yeah. is what it is don't ask me otherwise because I don't have any other answers for you and uh, by the way it's worse than even that yes so, yeah. 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 <laughs> Sally that phrase you just used is amazing that you wanted someone to access your heart through your brain because that's and the only way I know yeah but it's it's it so speaks to the experience of working in a hospice because so often you will have um, either patients or families who will ask question upon question upon question and they want you to, them to give you facts and information but the more information you give the more you realize it can never be enough because actually what they're asking for is something emotional and they want you to help them through what they're feeling and I can remember a particular example of this which doesn't happen very often I, I, I think I'm glad to say because it's very very hard but occasionally I'll care for an adult patient 
whose children want to talk to yes. the doctor about what's happening. And yes. I remember once having a conversation with a, a, um, a, a, a pretty young girl. She was only about nine or ten and her, her mum was dying imminently. And she had she knew she knew more about this particular mm. type of brain tumor than ninety percent of sure. the hospitals uh, of the doctors sorry, sure. in the hospital. She she was very bright girl and she knew everything. And she asked all these questions: Why aren't you doing gamma knife surgery? Why yeah. aren't you doing more chemotherapy? Why? Aren't you? And she wanted to understand it all. And as I was having this incredibly painful conversation, she would sort of in fits and starts. She'd ask another question, then she'd cry. Ask another question, then she'd cry. And I realized that what she was actually asking was the same question over and over yeah. again, which is, why can't you save my mum? Yeah. Mm. And rephrasing and it in a cerebral yes, way. in a cerebral mm. way. But essentially, I was asked 30 times, why can't you save my mum? And eventually, I, I, I was not sure of this at the time. I was sort of figuring it out as I went. But eventually... I stopped, I, I didn't answer one of her direct questions and I tried to answer the question that I thought she was asking, yeah. which was why we couldn't save her mum mm. and, and what was going to happen next. And it became apparent that actually that's what she needed to express and she started becoming more and more emotional because really what she wanted was to express her absolutely beyond you couldn't quantify how much she was feeling at the loss of her mum and I just I found that really interesting because she was doing exactly what mm. you just described answers well, answers answers order my brain for me order clear my up brain, my filing cabinet take away the pain and it was yeah there is um there is a slow horror to watching somebody deteriorate in that way yeah. Um, and I don't think there's anything that will ever make me... I don't think there's any way of getting over that. I think I'll carry that for the rest of my I life. Mean, it would be weird to get over it, right? Yeah, to bear yeah. witness to something that you can't... There's nothing. There was nothing that I could do. There was, yeah. there was apart from be there and yes. love him and care for him. This vital person is being... Mm. Diminished, day ravished, by day. ravished, yeah, yeah. Um, and that um, that was very hard on a daily basis to to bear witness, yes. to bear witness to this glorious man, you of know, course. who fought every day. I mean, actually, no, I don't like that word fought mm. because mm. I don't think people win or lose. No. Um, but there was a but spirit to him who, you know, he went down to the gym every other day. He could barely get out of bed into his wheelchair, yes. but he did it. Um, and you know, I witnessed him do that. Um, and it's given me a profound appreciation for this mad mental world we live in. And yeah, this <laughs> is the thing that I really wanted to ask both of you, is that, Rachel, your book is called Dear Life, um, which can be read multiple ways. Yep. Um, holding on for dear life is the way that I've, I've interpreted it. And I... The thing that I always kind of, I always have my therapist in my head <laughs> going, okay, like you read things like this and you have conversations like this and you go, oh, I really need to go home and appreciate all the things I have and live every day um, in with a new sort of 
uh, filter and, and try to experience, you know, not just grimace through my commute every day, but try to find um, I'm alive, I'm going to work, yes. it's fine, you know. And then I have like my inner therapist going, but life's not like that, is that? It's messy and it's painful and yeah. you can't and you dick fully, around. And you dick around and you sit around and watch Netflix. Like, and we're lazy. And, and we're lazy. fucking lazy. Yeah. I think, I mean, with, with Pat going to the gym, I'm like, well, fuck, I'm not doing that. Know, like, yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So like, what, how, how, how do we appreciate life in an ordinary but precious way. I think that's, I think oh, that's, well, that's, that's a really good question. Can I just add to it a quote that um, that I bookmarked in Dear Life, uh, Rachel's book, which is out now. Um, the British physician Dame uh, Cicely Saunders once wrote, you matter because you are you and you matter to the end of your life. We will do all we can, not only to help you die peacefully, but also to live until you die. Mm. And that, mm. I mean, it's a brilliant brilliant wise quote but that's a really good question mm. right we live in the real world where you do actually just dick around standing in a queue at prep waiting for a coffee mm. or you do just lie in bed on twitter whatever. how what is realistic we're not going to swim with dolphins like what, what <laughs> is realistic? I, I literally can't swim so that would actually bring about my death <laughs> what a way but, to go well, but but how do we how do we make Every day count when we live in the real world. Yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> and no, it's the, it's the question. So, yeah. well, yeah. this is this is where I'm currently at. Okay, interesting. Um, so, where I'm currently at is having been through all this trauma and feel like, um, like I was saying, that that took up a, a huge part of my life and that was a role for me. Um, actually, now I feel like I struggle in that very mundane every day. I don't think I'm doing it well. Yes. <laughs> I just don't. I don't. Yeah. I don't understand it. I feel, and this is a worry for me, is that I feel like I excel in chaos because yeah. for seven that years, for that's mm-hmm. all I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so having been through such a traumatic uh, six, seven years, and then this really, really quick wrenching away Mm. and now that person's gone um that's what i'm struggling with is is um trying to piece things together but just like you say like you know queuing up in prayer and going going to my pilates on a sunday night and you know and i'm doing it i'm really trying but i'm really struggling to put these two Mm -hmm. very like you're you should do you feel like you should be living a grander life, a more sort of meaningful I think it would be very dangerous life. for me to, to have that in my head, which is think, yeah. having observed Pat and um, how he clung to life with, with this, he just, he every day was going to count mm. for him. Um, having absorbed that, I think then it's very, uh, it would be dangerous for me to then say, well, Pat wouldn't, uh, Pat would yeah. get out of bed today, you know? Yeah. Really uh, so much that, because also... You were a couple. You weren't the same person. No. Mm. You two. Oh no, people. not pop people. No, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. And that was that was the glorious thing about us is we were, were um, very individual together. Mm. Um, but I do. I. I am struggling with having been through all of these um, um, huge life-altering experiences, and sometimes down the pub, I just suddenly words just escape me like if it's a conversation like just an everyday conversation and like I was saying um if I mention Pat yeah um he's immediately alive and in the room 
Um, and I don't sometimes want to go down that road. Yeah. So then yeah. I will almost um, gag myself. I'll, yeah. I'll be yeah. silent. Yeah. And I don't want to do that either. And then that makes me feel like I'm being an yeah. imposter because... Um, I'm it's not making sense because I'm saying some things and it's I don't finding add up somewhere and... where where he can sit in the room comfortably, isn't mm. it? Where he can he can sit there comfortably and he's there and he's always there. But you also have another life. Yeah, that's kind of full. It, I, yeah. I wonder if part part of this, you know, very simple, straightforward question. You ask <laughs> yeah. What's the meaning of yeah. life and yeah. how do we grasp it on a daily you basis? You see, you're taking me about quantum physics, but come on now, Sally. <laughs> Closing statement. How would you? Yes, I'm now going to reveal the meaning of life. No, I, I, I think in a way, and it, it touches on what you've just described. I, I think um, this is not so much about what we actually do, how we spend our time. It's what we tell ourselves, the story we tell ourselves about what we're doing. So it's perfectly okay to be sitting like that in the pub on the one hand finding you want to mm. not be gagging yourself talking about Pat and at the same time not wanting to go there because it's too emotional. That's that's the that's the messy imprecision of life. That's we, we're always being tugged in two, three, four, five different directions at once. But I guess then sort of telling yourself off or beating yourself up for maybe wasting that time because you couldn't figure that out. Mm. That's that story that you're telling yourself. That's definitely wasted time, not the act itself. Mm. And I, and I think with with um, sort of trying to seize the day and and have this kind of intense mm. sense of the immediacy of our tiny little spark of life against all these eons of blackness and deep time you know we've only got this flash in the pan we've got to live every second well we know that we're not going to do that every day because we um get cross because our arm our nose is in an armpit on the tube or or all the thousand Mm. annoyances of life get in the way but actually maybe the key is the story you tell yourself about how you're living your life and i know that i know it's easy because i leave a hospice every day but i leave the hospice knowing without a shadow of doubt that all of the things that I might have once whinged about, the fact that I've got wrinkles and weeding specks and my hair's starting to go a bit grey and I'm most definitely not as thin as I'd like to be, they sure as hell are things that I should be celebrating. Because Mm -hmm. I could be 19. I could never have even had an adult life. And here I am and indulging. not had your children. Not had my children. Yeah. Am I really going to whinge about my wrinkles? No, I'm not. And I, I think, I, I think what I take away from working with people who have very little time left every day is a profound sense of gratitude that isn't all pervasive. Of course, it doesn't stop me wasting time and worrying about things I don't need to, but. When it comes to the crunch in a hospice, almost everything gets stripped away. Yes. Almost everything doesn't matter. And the only things that remain are things that matter, even if they're not good, even if they're yeah. an ongoing family feud that has dominated that family all through their existence, only the things that matter are there. And usually that boils down to a very small number of people that you love beyond belief and the tiny little things that you always loved when you were healthy, like the fresh air and the sky and 
the tiny things. And actually, just what you've said about stories, that's my favourite Joan Didion line, which is we tell ourselves stories in order to live, which is not yes. from um, that particular book. Um, it's from a collection of essays, but um, I've, I always have that written down somewhere in, in the flat because for me, the only way that I could... I don't think I could have got through without writing. I, I, I just don't think... There was something about putting those words down on on a page for me um, that was the best therapy that I could have paid for. Well, also because it's you. Mm. You are a writer and returning to you Mm. is really important in trauma, I think. Yeah. Remembering Mm. who you are and what you do. What you do is you write stuff down. Mm. That is Mm. what you do. And And it's important to ground you, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I still have that. um, I have a notebook that I started about a week after he died um, and I'm still adding to it. It's interesting to me when I um, recently I look back, mm. sort of, which is quite hard to do. I don't do it all the yeah, time. Yeah, it's hard. Um, you know, it starts off really faintly in pencil, and I don't even like. Mm. I don't even recognise that woman. Yeah. I don't know who that woman is. You know, she's like, it's like the, a whisper. The, yeah, mm. it's like for the fra- the fragility of the you handwriting and that, I've, that I chose pencil. I just yeah, think that's that is so interesting. Um, that, it, that in itself is yeah, quite symbolic. Yeah. You could be rubbed out entirely. Yeah, and I was for a while. Yeah. I think um, I think gratitude is key. It's one of those things that sounds incredibly pop psychology and trite, yeah. but is true. And some things are a cliche because they are true. Yeah. yeah. And I have really, I've got to find a little quote. Do it. Can I? Do it yeah. I have yeah. really, I have really made a point in recent years of taking a moment to mm. just think about how lucky I am and uh, lucky I am that everybody's kind of walking around and is still yeah. alive. Can I read this quote? I can't believe how quick you got to it. Do well, it. I it. It's, it's almost like she page. wrote it. <laughs> meant to be. No, it's not me. It's a far infinitely better writer. This is a quote from Oliver Sacks. Oh, yes, I so read this. So in his 80s, he mm. was diagnosed with cancer, and he knew he was lucky. He was in his 80s. Wow. He was still frightened of dying. He still didn't want to Loved die. Loved his and writing. He, yeah, and he wrote a sh- very short book called Gratitude, which is about confronting his death in his 80s and this is the quote um oh it's so good this quote i cannot pretend i'm without fear but my predominant feeling is one of gratitude i have loved and been loved i've been given much and i have given something in return i have read and traveled and thought and written i've had an intercourse with the world the special intercourse of writers and readers above all i have been a sentient being a thinking animal on this beautiful planet and that in itself has been an enormous privilege and adventure. I mean, you can't knock that really, no. can you? That's you, it, isn't it? And and also, mm. Oliver Sacks, for anybody who's read his writing, of which there are many millions, Man in Mistook His Wife for a Hat, it's such a great book. He had really seen suffering and had really yeah. seen pain and had seen people's lives ravaged by um, mental ill health or disease and death. Mm. Um and so for him at the end of his life to actually see that as the summation of all of it is, yeah. is not nothing. Yeah. And on the one hand, in a hospice, you see the pain and the suffering and the distress that is an inescapable part of us being mortal creatures who are destined to die. But actually the most extraordinary thing is you see all the extraordinary things that a human being is capable of that he, that he has just captured so beautifully you see the strength the courage the dignity the kindness people on their deathbed who only care about their loved ones around them those people 
only caring about the patient in the bed and nothing about what they're feeling at all. And I find I come away every day from work feeling just astonished by the privilege of seeing human beings at their finest because we are a barking mad self-destructive lunatic species in many ways and we are also capable of this incredible grace and beauty and that is what you see in a hospice it's you know it's it's that thing of consistently undertakers come top Mm. for happiness of all the professions and um a friend of mine in Manchester is very close friends with a lady undertaker and um, <laughs> and, and, and so we and so we no I think they're literally called that but, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was talking to her about her friend and it's that thing of um, I think also in the top five after undertakers is midwives or whatever and registrars yeah. because actually to be of help and of value yes. at a momentous moment in somebody's life is kind of huge in terms of the satisfaction that you can give yourself to be of use when somebody is going through something so defining and so major is gratifying even though you wish it weren't that way for them yes Mm -hmm. it's big right to be able Mm -hmm. to ameliorate something in that situation and the honor of bearing witness to someone's very private yes intensely personal moments and sharing those with somebody is is absolutely humbling and astonishing to me and then sometimes you know the the job feels like the entire collected works of Shakespeare every single day because all that intensity and emotion and these profoundly meaningful moments of upheaval in people's lives are there and if you can if you can help even a tiny bit, then that seems to me something I, worth doing. I think doing. that's entirely true, but also part of me wonders if the reason undertakers, midwives, palliative care doctors are on the whole happier is also because they confront themselves with life and death every day in a way that the rest of us hide from. I think mm. so. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think to be armed with facts, indisputable facts, about the fact that we are definitely on our way out. Everyone here is on our way out from the moment you draw your first breath. I think that must make for a happier person, not a less happy person. I think we fool ourselves that it makes us less happy to contemplate the fact that we Mm. will die. But part of me thinks it probably makes you happier because you know and you live with it. Mm. Mm. Well, they have that constant adjustment every single day that you can't Mm. run from. It's, Mm. It's right there. You can't lose it. And that's the great irony, of course, because actually we're all dying. We're just doing it very, very, very slowly. Mm. So it's imperceptible and we barely notice. And I think that's the curious thing that no matter how rigorously you try and deny it, you're actually still doing it. You just don't quite know when the cutoff date is. Mm. And, And my dad said this extraordinary thing to me very close to the end of his life about the fact that... Uh, before his diagnosis he was mortal he was someone who was going to die one day he just didn't know when exactly and after his diagnosis he was someone who was going to die one day just didn't know when exactly yeah Mm. and Mm. everything had changed but nothing had changed and I don't know what the meaning is from that but I found that comforting 
we've come to the end of the show. You've been so brilliant. I could literally do a kind of 30-part series on this. Just <laughs> before um, I play us out, can you just both uh, tell us where you can be found on social media for anybody who wants to explore these themes further or just wants to hear your voice on anything, really? Oh, so I'm on the I'm on the Twitters. <laughs> <laughs> At Madam underscore George, Cat Lister. Um, so you can find me there. Are you writing a book? Please write a book. Yes. I am working on something. Okay, good, good. <laughs> She's cooking something. <laughs> I'm cooking something Dr. up. Dr. Rachel Clark, Dear Life, A Doctor's Story of Love and Loss, is, is literally just out in all bookshops. Where can you be found elsewhere? I'm also on the Twitters, <laughs> and I am at Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R underscore Oxford. Dr. Oxford, yeah. Um, Kate Severe and I, well, I won't be back next month because um, I'm in recovery from an operation. It's, very, it's fine. Mm, it's, it's fine. Routine. I'm fine. Okay. I'm not ill. Um, so I'll I look after you all. Uh, next month, but Kate Severe will be holding the fort and we'll play out with another Life Affirmer. Thank you so much, ladies. Thanks See for having us. Yeah, thank you.